I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We are in the last chapter of 1 Timothy, and so we're, uh, we're well on our way. So um, 1 Timothy 6, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. And would you stand as I do so? 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 10. And hear the word of the living God. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich... Fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for hope and peace and joy. We thank you for the fruit of the Spirit's presence amongst us. And we thank you for your word where you have chosen to make yourself known to us. So God, would you help us to hear? Would you help us to see? Would you help us to understand? Holy Spirit, would you illuminate your word for us? And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So God, would you speak today? Speak to us, Lord. Father in heaven, Speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. Maybe seated. So I think about what I'm supposed to call this message. I guess I want to. The thing I want to say to you uh, is: beware counterfeit. Beware counterfeit contentment. Beware of, if you want to, whatever that is, a participle, 
Uh, it, beware of counterfeit contentment. Remember where we are, right? We're at the end of this first letter, the first of the pastoral epistles. First Timothy, second Timothy, Titus are all called the pastoral epistles because they are they're the best in, uh, instruction that we have about the life of the church. They're the they're fullest riches. We see what the church looks like in Acts, and sometimes it's hard to figure out in Acts what's uh, descriptive, what's simply describing what's happening, and what's prescriptive in, meant to be instructive for what the church ought to look like. But when we come to First and Second Timothy and Titus, we have really, really explicit commands, explicit direction, even though it's seated in particular churches, right? Paul writes to Timothy in Ephesus. He writes to Titus in Crete, which is a little island. Don't worry about it right now, but go look up, you know, Get on Google Maps, zoom all the way out, and then zoom in on the Mediterranean. You'll, you'll find Crete eventually. It's not Cyprus. It's the other one. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but he's writing to particular churches. He's writing to particular um, apostolic emissaries. Titus and Timothy are extending the work of the apostle. And he is sent, as in chapter 1, he tells Timothy, I sent you there to make sure that people don't teach false doctrine." And, if, and again, I don't want to hammer this. I'm going to hammer it for a second, but I don't want to overhammer it because we've been hammering it this whole, whole series. But doctrine matters. Theology matters. And too often we find in churches that, that and, I, and this is broad brushstroke, I'm not trying to malign any particular church, um, but when we are afraid to actually press into what do we believe? What is it that we believe that God has said in the scriptures? What you need, what you need is what God has said. What God says does intersect what you feel like you need. But sometimes God says something to help you feel a need that you didn't know you had. And that's called conviction. That's sort of out of nowhere confrontation that God brings. And I think if there's, and there's a million things, right? This is not a letter to the American church or something, right? Have you seen, if you've seen that going around, um, you know, if what, what, if, you know, if Paul were still writing letters, what kind of letter would he write to the American church, right? First, you know, first Americans, um, dearly beloved grace and peace to you. What the heck guys. Um, but, uh, that's not this, that's not this sermon, uh, but if there's anything that, that we, could, we could spend some time on is what's addressed in this passage. Because we, by, I mean, removing the, and this is, I'm not, I'm not trying to step on your, your toes intentionally. Uh, I'm sure I will. But removing the, uh, the twists and the turns away from biblical truth that the Roman Catholic Church had during the uh, Pre-Reformation, and in a lot, lot of ways, continues still. That's not what this sermon's about. Don't get mad. Um, they had a lot of money hedged up, is what I'm saying. But by, with, with that exemption, I don't have statistics or, or measurements. Um, but I would say that the church in the West and the church in America is by heads and tails, like beyond measure, the most monetarily affluent group of Christians that have existed in church history. And I say, and I would say that confidently, not without really 
without any sort of uh, nuance, right? Even if you were to consider the great wealth of the Roman Catholic Church, that was not seeded in local churches with local Christians. It was usually taken from Christians so that they could go build something big in Rome. That we are, right now, and you might, you're thinking, this is Christmas time, I don't know what I'm getting my kids, I don't know what I'm getting my grandkids, how dare you talk to me about having a lot of money? Okay, I, I want to recognize that. That there are people here, or people that, are, that will hear this, that by, by no measure can you say to yourself that you're rich, right? You're, how am I going to get presents? How am I going to get food for the family for Christmas? How do I, how do I make this special? Um, how are we, we going to pay the light bill? Okay, I understand. So, but by saying that you're the most affluent generation or affluent group of Christians, that doesn't negate your personal experience. Your personal experience doesn't negate that truth. You just, I mean, just look, look right now, compare what, where we are. Just how about this? How about this? Some of you now, Puerto Rico is an, is an American Commonwealth, right? It's not an American state, but uh, you look at, if you were to go to Puerto Rico, which we're going to do by God's grace in 2023. So y'all come, um, we got our, we got a spot for you. Uh, I don't know when or what or how or how, whatever. I don't know details yet, but y'all come. Okay. Um, but you go look where they worship. It's, it's, I mean, they keep it immaculate. Um, it's very nice on the inside, but it ain't like this. When it's hot there, it's hot. It's never cold there, so it's not really cold. But it's, when it's hot, it's hot. They don't have, you know, indoor central heating and air. And maybe a more dramatic example. I know some of you have seen it. That's why I bring that one up. But, but for example... Probably, and I don't, again, I don't have statistics for you if you're a numbers person. Um, probably the, the largest and, mo- and, and it has been the fastest growing evangelical church, e- fastest growing church has been the, the churches in China. Now, things are different there, but uh, when I went in, this is oh, 10 years ago, we were distributing Bibles up north, super cold. Like coldest to this day ever. And as, as cold as I ever want to be. It was like negative 40. I didn't know that happened. Um, you don't know what, what bananas look like at negative 40. It's, we left one in the van and it was like amazing. Or an apple or a blueberry. It's like a science experience. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but we would go into these churches and they would sit. You probably sit, you know, 60, 70, 80 people in some of these, some of the church buildings. Um, and negative 40 daytime we're not talking like nighttime it gets colder than that right we're up there in manchuria almost to russia uh and you know like they still gathered for worship and they had i have one in my head right now there was there's a set of benches on one side there's a set of benches you know say there's 10 on this side there's 10 on this side there's you know i don't know each seats i don't know five or six or whatever um and the way that they would heat the building is that during the summer months, when the warmer months, they would grow sunflowers. So they would have sunflowers and then obviously get super cold. They have to, they do the, that was their crop and they take the sunflower seeds away. But they would end up with this great harvest, if you will, of sunflower stalks. And in the back of the room, in the back of the sanctuary, there was what you might imagine was like, like a 55 gallon drum. No, I take it back. It was in the front. It was in the front. It was like right here. 
it was a little bit smaller than a 55 gallon drum with a door on it. And then running from the back of it was about a six inch pipe that ran all the way down the, the sanctuary. And then it kind of curly cued out the roof in the back. I mean, probably about maybe, maybe four inches. I don't know. I'm not, you know. Uh, and the way that would, they would heat the building is that they would set a fire in that drum. They would open the door and they would start feeding sunflower stalks into it. And the sunflower, if you've ever seen a sunflower, like they get tall. And so the stalks, they didn't chop them up or anything. They just pushed them straight in. So the whole service, that door is open and there's this fire and there's stalks sitting out of it. And there's one guy's job is to keep kind of pushing the stalks in there, pushing them into the fire. But you can imagine when it's, you know, say it's even zero. It's a warm, it's a balmy day in Manchuria and it's zero outside. Uh, you can imagine that, you know, they don't have like the super insulation that we have. The, the warmest spot was right next to that pipe and the pipe was right at knee height. And you get a red hot, it was, if you've ever gotten on the back of a motorcycle and you've touched the exhaust pipe when it's hot, I hear that hurts. That hasn't happened to me, but uh, it's the same, the same idea. But they would gather every day. I mean, every, every, every week, every Lord's Day, they would gather in this building and they would gather with joy. And I could tell you, and I haven't been all around the world. I haven't been to a million different churches, but that's just, I could tell you stories of churches in China. I could tell you stories of churches in Brazil and in Haiti where believers worship. And, and it's amazing. It's amazing the enthusiasm and the joy that they have in Jesus. And, and there's, because there's some benefit, there's something to be said that they have not. They, they don't, they, it's something to be said that they haven't been, I don't want to say corrupted, that's too strong of a word, but that, that they haven't experienced the great surplus of blessings that we have. Because this is human nature, right? Human nature says we receive all of these good things from God and all of the good things from God ought to be enjoyed as coming from God so they should be enjoyed leading us up into worship. And we're going to get into this next week. There's an awesome verse later on in, in, in chapter 6 about that God has given us all things to, for our enjoyment, to, to enjoy. But too often... Because of our sinful nature, because we live in a fallen world, we take the good gifts of God and they are truly good because God is good. The good gifts of God are so good. And you can go from the, the really great and wonderful things like when you first meet and you enter into that marriage relationship with that person that's your person. And even when it's like this, right, it's up and down and you want to bang your head against the wall, you wouldn't trade them. That's just me. But Sarah Beth's not here. But, um, but you wouldn't trade them. She, she's mine and I'm hers. And that's it's such, a, it's such a thing. I can't even articulate it today. Or when you, ha when you have your, your child born. I can't cry. For the, for the first month, this is not an exaggeration. I'm, I'm a sap, right? Whatever you want to make fun of me, that's fine. The first month of Evelyn May's existence, I would, every time I looked at her, I would just tear up at the, at the, at the utter joy. And then the, it's like the joy mixed with terror that God has entrusted this tiny person to us and to me. That is joy and goodness beyond words. And you can kind of go down from there. You stand at a stunning sunrise or sunset. The good gifts of God are good because they're of God. 
But what sin does to us is that where those good gifts should be leading us upward and say, praise God. Praise God for the gift and the difficulty of marriage. Praise God for the gift and the difficulty of parenting. Praise God for the beauty of a sunrise and of a sunset. Or if you've ever, ever been to, I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but I've been to, to uh, Yellowstone. And they have something called the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone. And you can, there's a perch where you can, and the painters have painted all these paintings of it. Um, but you can go out and you can see this gigantic waterfall. And it's etched in my brain. And it's been years and years, two, 2008 I think it was. I don't know. Um, but... Praise God. But too often good gifts make our eyes fall and we think, I need more of that. I need, I need more of this thing. I need more of, you know, I need, I need to behold more sunrises and sunsets to be finally satisfied. I need more from my spouse or how sin often does it. I need something, I, see, I need something more than what my spouse is able to give me and I'm going to go find it with somebody else or something else. That these things, good gifts, become corrupted and they make us look other places. And one of the good gifts that God gives us and one of the great privileges that God has given us as the American church is that he has entrusted such a gigantic treasury of earthly money and of possessions and of clout and influence. And what's happened is that Rather than saying God has given us these good things, right? It's a good thing that you work hard and you receive a paycheck and you're able to pay your bills and do some fun stuff on the side too. That's a good gift. It's a good gift. But it's a bad, it turns into a mutated, rotten gift when you're saying I have this money, I have what I need, but I want these other things too. Then I will be satisfied, so I need to do more, or I need to figure out how to get more money so that I can get these other things. And so then I will be satisfied. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll have the house, and then I'll have the car, and then I'll have the boat. Then I'll have the 401k or the 4013CBQRS, whatever you have as public, public ed and pastors. And, um, but that, that, then, then I'll be happy. There is a counterfeit contentment that the, the world wants to push to you. And it was coming into Ephesus on the backs of false teaching. Because in order for that to make sense, you have to change what you believe. Christian, I'm talking to the church, right? In order for that to make sense, in order for the, the earthly picture of the American dream, get more Get a good retirement, sail off into the sunset, always looking at more stuff and more things, then something has to change with what you believe. Either you put what you believe on the shelf and you begin to act in different ways, right? That happens all the time. Or you change what you believe in order to fit what you want. God wants me to be happy. So, this. And the problem is, is that you begin with yourself rather than beginning with God. And you'll never know full joy. You'll have everything this world has to offer to you and you will never have full joy. It was coming in with false teachers. And these false teachers, we've seen so far that they've been... That chapter 1, they speculate about the law. Chapter 4, they deny creation. 
And here in chapter 6, they're motivated by greed. And they leave sound doctrine and divide the church in the name of greed. Now, it would be low-hanging fruit right now to say, here are the, the long list of false teaching prosperity gospelers, gospel preachers, false gospel preachers, prosperity gospel preachers in America who do this very same thing. You know, here I've, you know, somebody, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, I'm, this is a little bit of mockery, so forgive me. Hey, I, I dipped my big toe in this oil while I prayed, and I'm going to send you a vial of it. And if you, if you put your big toe in it, it will fix your gout. Now, that seems stupid, right? But it's the same, you know, hey, I have this, uh, I have this handkerchief, I, it's been prayed over, or, or somebody started crying while they prayed, and they dapped their tears, and now we're going to mail it to you. Just sow a seed into the ministry of $1,000. And see the, what God gives you as you reap out, whatever, a million dollars. And you're thinking, ah, oh, that doesn't, go turn on the TV. And somehow these dudes and dudettes, are able to sustain not just ministries, but they're able to have jets preying upon people. And what they're doing is they are pubbing a counterfeit contentment. They're, they're, they're spinning something up in the name of Jesus. And dear ones, this is a uniquely American heresy. Yeah, it was spinning up here in Ephesus, but they didn't have the tools to put it on display like we do in America. And not only to put it on display, but to export it. And too often, what is exported in terms of the gospel, in terms of doctrine, go to somewhere like Sao Paulo. Go to Brazil. And you see, now there are good solid churches in Sao, Sao Paulo. Don't get me wrong. But the biggest ones, I remember we, saw, we went to a, the church, when we were down there, the building, I don't know how many had to seat. It was like an arena. And they had a whole... Now, there's a lot of nuance I would give here, but just hang on. I, don't, I can't do all the nuance today. So. Um, but they had a whole um, like shipping container of uh, wheelchairs, walkers, canes, where peep, they, would, they had this, you know... People came, people gave money, and then people said they received this, this healing. Now, I'm, I'm not getting into God. God does heal people, right? But it is a unique conspiracy on the, by the, on the part of false teachers to say, God will always heal you if you do these things, if you give this much, if you show up here. That God is after, he wants for you a big, big bank account and absolutely no earthly problems. Or as one famous pastor, we'll call him, we'll just use that because that's what they call him in the church. Uh, he wrote a book, you know, Your Best Life Now. And as a, someone else said, if your best life is now, then you're headed to hell. There's a counterfeit contentment. So they're teaching a different doctrine and it doesn't accord with the sound doctrine of Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness in verse 3. So that they're, they're teaching something that doesn't line up with the standard. 
That even before, right, Paul is writing part of the New Testament here. Even before the New Testament is fully put into a book and printed in nice Bibles for us to read, that there is a standard, there is a plumb line of truth against which things must be measured. What they are saying, Paul says, doesn't line up with the sound or the healthy words of Jesus. And the teaching that accords with godliness, it doesn't line up with what we've received from Jesus, and it does not lead to godly living. See, what you believe matters because what you believe shapes what you do. And this false teacher in verse 4, he's puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. Uh, a, a paraphrase says that they're, uh, oh, what, what do you say? Ignorant idiots. But it's the same thing that we saw in chapter 1, that they're professing to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. How many times have you seen someone boldly preach? And it's just fluff and air. And even worse than fluff and air, it's false gospel. And if there's anything, any courage, right, that you should have as a Christian, that I should have as a pastor and as a preacher, that we should be prepared and willing to call out false doctrine when it's false doctrine. I'm not just talking about like there are places where Christians disagree, right? What's your view of the millennium, right? What's your view on the on eschatology? And Jesus, that's end times, y'all. Okay, you know, we can, there's plenty of room to disagree there. Just be a, you know, as they say, be a, a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out in the end, okay? Just be cool with that. There's a lot of things that Christians disagree on, and some of them are very significant. Like, who do we baptize? Do we baptize believers and their children, or do we baptize believers only? That's a significant thing. That we can say that I believe that's error, but it's not on the level of false teaching, certainly not on the level of heresy. So we need to do a little bit of triage and say, all right, here's a level one, here's a level two, here's a level three. That we should be able to call out these things and say, no, that's actually damning to a person's soul. If you begin to believe that your treasure is not in heaven, but it's in this life, then you are directly contradicting the words of Jesus and the apostles and the Bible Your soul might become in jeopardy as you live that way. So it's brought in. It's brought into the church and it arises from within the church and it's twisting the gospel to serve sinful nature. And we see it in verse 5. There are constant friction among people who are depraved in mind. They don't know the truth. Deprived of the truth, they can't see the truth, they've, they've completely fallen away from it, their, their, their hearts are hardened, their consciences are seared, and they have no more conviction, and so they are released almost as hounds of hell. And all of a sudden the book of Proverbs makes a lot more sense. If you begin to see the, see the book of Proverbs this way, yeah, it's kind of disjointed, you go read Proverbs and you're like, it's all kind of all over the place. But consider this. Proverbs at the end day is all about lady wisdom and lady folly or foolishness fighting over the simple minded. You have wisdom in the streets, chapter 8. Wisdom is preaching. She's a street preacher. 
Say, you who are naive, you who are simple-minded, come this way, turn to me and live. And then you have Lady Folly with words of seduction that speak to the sinful nature saying, turn here and I can give you satisfaction. The whole book, that's, that's it. Wisdom, folly. Turn to the Lord, turn away from the Lord. Life, death. And it's for those in the middle that are like, I don't know. Kind of naive about things. Simple-minded about things. I'm not trying to turn this into a rant, but that's too often we've created. We've discipled Christians into naivete. We've discipled Christians into simple-mindedness. Because we've lowered the bar so low because we say, hey, come believe, follow Jesus, follow Jesus, follow Jesus, as we rightly should. But y'all, sometimes you got to pull on your big boy pants. Your, that's going to sound lady if I, that sound, sound wrong for that big lady pants. You know, I don't, whatever the equivalent is, right? I'm not trying to be derogatory. But sometimes you have to, you have to grow in maturity of your thinking. I'm not saying everybody's going to be writing a systematic theology, but you shouldn't run from it either. Because what you believe matters. And what this, and, you, and not only what you believe matters, but as you begin to see the fruit of it in a church, craving for controversy, quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. Good grief, could we preach a sermon about the church in 2022 and evil suspicions? Not just in a local congregation, but you talk about, you know, if you get online, these people over here and these people over here, we forgot what it means to actually like love hopes all things. And it's so easy to fall into, even when you're, you're clutching orthodoxy, you believe you're clutching truth. It's so easy to lose the spirit of it too. And while it not be, might not be false teaching, it becomes false living where it brings division to the body when it shouldn't. Yes, truth sometimes divides, but we shouldn't hasten the course unnecessarily. But the crux of their problem was that they're imagining godliness as a means of gain. Not only do the preachers believe that if they preach, then you can gain they preach a certain way, they preach this false gospel, then they could gain. But they're saying that godliness should gain, you could gain something in this earthly world. Monetarily, physically. But Paul put, brings the correction, but in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. You could translate that but as like indeed. Truly, truly godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. Godliness with contentment is of great gain because godliness with contentment actually matches up to life as it is. It roots your contentment, your peace, your joy, your fulfillment, your rest. It links all of those things to an immovable thing, or better said, an immovable person. The word contentment here, Paul is actually stealing. He does this every now and again. He takes this word from Stoic philosophy. 
Stoic philosophy taught that you need to have an inner sort of an inner satisfaction, inner peace, that you're able to be dis- disjointed or disconnected from your aver- everyday circumstances. The problem with Stoic philosophy, with its, with its godlessness, is that the contentment that tries to find true inner peace upon an ever-changing person is an ever-changing peace. You can see this today. There's an upsurge of Stoic philosophy out there. And that's why if you read Stoic philosophy, a lot of it will, you read Marcus Aurelius's meditations and you're like, oh, that sounds pretty good. But rather than rooting contentment away from the person, it says root contentment on your inner person. And if there's anything that you should know, you should know by now is that you don't stay the same. A great illustration of this. Uh, do, do the exact thing that your doc in this, in this one instance, do the exact thing that the doctor tells you not to do. Get a weight scale and weigh yourself every day. And then weigh yourself at different times of day, right? And all of a sudden, like, I, I literally gained two pounds since eight o'clock. You don't stay the same. You don't stay the same outwardly. You don't stay the same inwardly, right? right? You know this. Go look at a picture of yourself. Some of you... 20 years ago, some of you 10 years ago, some of you five years ago. I don't know how old some of you are, right? But go look at a picture of yourself. You don't stay the same. And so if you start with yourself and say, my contentment, my peace, my enjoyment, my steadfastness needs to sit with myself, then your, your peace will always be ebbing and flowing and up and down. Because despite your best efforts, you cannot disconnect yourself from your circumstances. You can't, you can't remove yourself from time. You can't remove yourself from physical limitations. You can't remove yourself from relationships and still authentically be in relationships. You can't remove yourself from your work if you're actually going to do work. You can't live discontented. And this is not just a problem of Stoic philosophy. This is the problem with a lot of Eastern religions as well. That somehow the, the quest for nirvana... Becomes an inward pursuit. But the godliness, the contentment that brings great gain, the contentment that prepares us that we brought nothing into this world, the contentment, the godliness that prepares us for the day when we bring nothing out of this world has to find its root in someone else. It has to look somewhere else. Do you get what I'm, you, you see the argument I'm trying to make, right? Yes, everyone is built to chase contentment. There is a false counterfeit contentment that this world will pub to you, that false teachers will sell to you, but yet your desire for contentment cannot be met in any of those. Your desire for contentment, joy, peace, happiness, rest, shalom, well-being, human flourishing, whatever language you want to put on it, it has to be rooted in someone external from yourself because you've been made for someone else. But if we have food and clothing with these, we are content. Paul brings this to light and I'll, I'll wrap up here. I know I've talked a lot. You probably know this verse, right? Philippians 4. I'm going to read 4 through 10. 4, I'm excuse me, Philippians 4, 10 through 13. 
Um, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's the secret, Paul? This is what you should be asking after verse 12. How do you do that? How do you be content? How are you to be content when you can't pay the water bill? How are you to be content when you're, you're like, how, can, where can I go to get presents for my kids? Go to Dollar Tree or Five Below. Is this really the Christmas that I want to give to them? How can I be content when I'm dealing with this cancer? How can I be content when this person that I love is struggling in this way? How can I be content in this world burdened by sin and darkness and death and war and brokenness? How in the world, Paul? What is the secret? And you need to know because that's where you live. And if you look to yourself, dear one, you're going to wake up tomorrow reaching and groping for contentment and happiness somewhere that won't give it. Verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The anchor of your contentment, the anchor of your hope, the anchor of your satisfaction must rest in Christ and Christ alone. What does the writer of Hebrews say in chapter 13, verse 8, right? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Put your hope there. Find your contentment there. Find your rest with Him. Find your joy with Him. Believe the promises of God, right? Psalm 1611, that at His right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 17, 15, I will awaken and I will be satisfied with your likeness. I will look to God in faith and find satisfaction abounding and not having anything. Sick, healthy. I've had a great day. I've had a cruddy day. But I have a, I have a foundation below all of the muck and the mire that I can plant my feet firmly upon Jesus and rejoice. And so can you. And this is the hope of the gospel. This is the hope of doctrine, right? It's not just for for studies in libraries and schools. But press into Jesus. So that that's your life too. So that whether this is a holly jolly Christmas. Or whether this is the hardest Christmas you've ever had. Because this is the first Christmas without that person. Or it's the first Christmas where you haven't had a job. First Christmas with your, the relationship with your kids isn't what you want it to be. Press into Jesus. I'm not saying that all of a sudden you press into Jesus and it's, all your problems go away. That's, that is horse manure. Anybody that tells you different is wrong. But all of a sudden when you plant your feet on Christ and you plant your feet in eternity... You see things that God is doing something here that you have no imagination. Your imagination cannot grasp. You can find peace. Even, even through grief. Even through pain. 
even through confusion, there below all of that, there is a joy that comes in the morning. And that is for you. Beware the love of money. Beware the counterfeit contentment of this world. And if there's anything that American Christians have to guard ourselves against, it is this counterfeit contentment. That if you get more money, you get a bigger house, you can buy your beach house, lake house, mountain house, boat house, one day space house, that you'll somehow be happy. Dear ones, press into something. All those things will rot and fall. Press your feet into Christ. And even if you have all those things, you'll still know contentment is only in Jesus. I want to close with a quote. This is from Richard Sibbs, who is a 17th century Puritan. He said, let fall what will get into Christ to be in him in an happy, eternal condition. We shall have strength from him to carry ourselves into all estates. Come what will, he will stand by us. He will not fail us nor forsake us. The question is, is, is he your contentment today? Did you wake up this morning hoping that you would behold more of Jesus in faith? Did you wake up this morning believing that if I, if I can just know Christ more, he will be a fountain of joy pouring into my heart? Or did you wake up this morning thinking, ah, I've got to do this and I've got to do this and I've got to go listen to Jacob rant for a minute and then I've got to go to a business meeting and then I've got to do this and I've got to do this. But if I get all of my stuff done, then I can rest. Did you wake up this morning thinking that if, if this, you know, that's the worst, right? If all those people get their stuff right, because the problem can't be me, it's all them out there. If old Jim Bob, if, you're, if there's a Jim Bob in here, I'm sorry. Just, I didn't know of one, so that's why I used it. If old Jim Bob would quit acting a fool, then I'd finally, our family would finally be at peace. But he's going to bring all of his nonsense to Christmas Eve. Be sure to bring him to church on Christmas Eve too. He can hear the gospel. Are you looking for contentment in all the wrong places? Don't settle for counterfeit contentment. Press into Jesus. And for some of you today, this might be the invitation that you need to trust Jesus for the first time. Do you remember when the angel came to Mary? He says, hey, this is the Jacob paraphrase. Hey, you're going to have a baby even though you're still a virgin. And she's like, what? And he says, Holy Spirit's power is going to overshadow you. And eventually she comes to the point of saying, I am the Lord's servant. Let your word happen to me. Dear ones, that's how you begin to experience the peace, contentment, and the satisfaction in Christ is when you surrender to him. So right now, even if, if you're a Christian, you think about all that list of stuff. We all got it, right? All that stuff that you would fix, all that stuff that would be better. Right now, as we sing, as we respond, you don't have to sing. You pray and say, God, I give that to Jesus. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Lay your yoke upon me, your burden, and I will give you my yoke, my burden, which is easy and light. Come make that exchange with Jesus so that you can have peace, in the season of peace.
But for you who have never surrendered to Jesus, you've never trusted him. This is your way to contentment. Your way to contentment is quit white knuckling the steering wheel of your life and say, I yield. I am your servant. Let your word happen to me. Surrender your life to Jesus. He died for you. He loves you. Respond to him in faith. Believe in Christ. And you can have new life. And you can have contentment and peace. Not ease, not complacency, not comfort. But you'll have Jesus. So you respond. In a minute, we're going to respond. And you all have homework. You got stuff you need to lay down. And some of you need to lay down your life for the first time and trust Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Would you help us, Holy Spirit, to respond as you would have us? Would we hear your voice through your word and know that this is what you would have us to do? This is what you would have us to believe. Would you give grace to those who are wrestling? Your, your children, they've believed upon you, but God, they've kind of lost sight and believe they're, they're dealing with, with so many things right now. Their eyes are clouded by, by grief. Their eyes are clouded by sickness. Or worse, their eyes are clouded by, by greed. Would you grant repentance for those who need to repent? Would you grant comfort for those who need comfort that all of them would find new contentment in Jesus? But Lord, right now, I want to I ask for your Holy Spirit to do the miracle of new birth in our midst right now. That for those who right now they know, they know that they've never truly trusted in Christ They might have gone through a lot of motions. They might have settled all the right things, but their heart is not yours. Lord, would you conquer the last remaining things that are holding them up that they might find true peace in Jesus and that they would experience new birth by your power through the gospel? Would they call out to Jesus acknowledging that they've sinned, acknowledging that they've fallen, acknowledging that they need a Savior and it is Christ alone. And would they have the confidence that you hear that cry and you save all who come to you, Lord Jesus. So would you do your work amongst us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.